Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. The only show dedicated to exploring the commercialization of great ideas and research across deep tech and science, driven by the ambition of the people that make up Australia's unique innovation landscape. We talk to the greatest minds about what is influencing their work and their insights into the ingredients needed to bring great Australian innovation to life. Hello, I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. Welcome to the Commercial Disco. Today I'm talking to the Chief Executive of the Bionics Institute, Robert Klupax. Welcome, Robert. Thanks, James. Having a look at your bio, 30 years experience in tech development, primarily in medical technology and biotechnology, a lawyer by training, and then the, uh, the real interesting bit, Robert Klupax is the founder of 24 companies in Australia and Singapore. So as far as the commercialization process goes, I'm going to say you've got some game. Well, I've started a lot of companies. They haven't all been successful, James, but yes, I've started a lot. Okay. Well, we learn from all of those, don't we? Right. Let's talk about the Bionics Institute, obviously Melbourne-based, very well resourced, and has been very successful in the commercializing of companies. How many portfolio companies have you got? And just tell me a little bit about the structure of the organization. The organisation was a standalone medical research institute, company limited by guarantee, affiliated with the University of Melbourne, but we own all our intellectual property, we employ all our own people, and that's how we set up. We have about 117 people all up, but not all full-time people. Very cross-disciplinary, very multidisciplinary. We've got engineers, clinicians, scientists, commercial people, project management people, clinical trialists, all working together. And we have a number of clinician collaborators that really help us. So that's one of the things that sets us apart. We've been around now nearly 40 years. We have a budget of approximately $13 million a year, which is small compared to a lot of other people. So we try to make it go as far as we can. And to do that, we need to be pretty clever in how we move things from the early concept and in our goal to translate them all the way through the clinical trial and beyond is what we set out to do. So how many portfolio companies would be in there now? We have five portfolio companies. We have equity in five companies, some more than others. One was the Bionic Eye Company. We have a small equity with a lot of other people from what happened 15 years ago. We have an equity drug delivery system for a glaucoma drug, which also was something that was a few years ago. And in the last five years, we've created three new companies which have gone extremely well, one in epilepsy detection one in a new treatment or improved treatment for Parkinson's disease, and more recently a joint venture manufacturing company with the University of Melbourne, Neobionica. And right now, we've got another three currently being incubated, which we'd like to think will be completed within the next six to 12 months as well. So biotech and medtech, biotech, I suppose, in particular, seems to be ahead of the game in terms of commercialization prowess, like taking things out of the lab and actually you know, delivering a commercial result so I know you guys are based in East Melbourne. There's a fair density of other related companies and startups and researchers in that area. Just talk me through what is biotech and medtech doing that other industries perhaps haven't caught on to yet? Why is it working? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about other industries. I, I know that particularly in Melbourne, we've always had a long history in medical technologies. So just by portfolio, there's more of them to be developed. 
clearly being a regulated environment, being able to protect the discoveries with patents allows investors something to get their head around, but it is a long journey. So I think there's lots of other areas of innovation that I've seen in Melbourne, particularly in fintech and in digital, that people are probably going just as heavily into. But I think it's the historical element of going way back to the 40s and 50s, you know, McFarlane, Burnett, Flory, and all those type of people that laid the groundwork for a lot of people to get into this field. And more recently, a lot of those discoveries that we've seen in biotech that have now come all the way through that 20-year journey are, are in the clinic and, and beyond and are being used. I think investors can see that. We're not so much in drug development here at the Institute. We're much more in devices. And I think, again, you know, Cochlear, ResMed, companies like that, people can see that if that's done well, they can make a lot of money and invest it, but they can also have a big impact. So there's been a lot of engineering capability built up around that. And so there's a bit of an ecosystem, particularly in the medtechs area in Melbourne, where you can bring a lot of parts together to get a much greater whole. And I think that's part of the reason there's more medtech development than perhaps, say, in other areas like agtech or the like. So the Bionics Institute set up decades ago with some patient capital. And, and I guess the relationships with University of Melbourne and the relationship I think you have one with St. Vincent's Hospital down there for clinical trials, those kinds of relationships are incredibly important, but they also, like they're a human-to-human human element to build the trust and the sharing and all of that. Talk us through how those relationships started and how they go now. You know, I think you mentioned this, Melbourne. We have labs located within the same business teaching hospital. We also have affiliations with clinicians at the Ioneer Hospital, which is just up the road. So it's that clinical interfacing of engineering that people become friends, they work together on little problems, they get a grant together, all of a sudden they're working together, they create a relationship. And those relationships in many cases have lasted a long time. They have PhD students come underneath it, they have clinical fellows come in and they sort of get added into the mixture. And I think that's why it works. And the other thing is because that constant bumping together of problem solvers, engineers, with clinicians who have just come out of surgery or the clinic say, gee, I've got this problem, that's the unusual feature that we have in our policing, that we can have those two type of ends of the spectrum bump in together to create something. And that's it's quite a unique alchemy because a lot of traditional medical research is done in a laboratory setting without too much clinician input and particularly the clinicians being able to test what we make. That certainly doesn't happen very often. But in our precinct, it does. And because you've got people helping each other out, you do develop much closer relationships over time, James. I think that's probably the key element. So various state governments have put together precinct programs to try and build that density that you're talking about there. It sounds like, certainly in the case of biotech and medtech, that involving the clinicians has certainly been very powerful. Yeah, it has been, and I think, you know, we are part of the newly formed ACMD precinct, which RMIT, University of Melbourne, San Business Hospital, ACU, us, St. Vincent's Institute, all coming together within a or separate world within 200 metres of each other, and now having a beautiful purpose-built building being put together, we think that will accelerate that collaboration. And People say sometimes I'll throw you together and great things will happen, but it needs to be a bit more than that. There needs to be a bit of a purpose. You need to have a similar culture that you want to actually move things out from just curiosity driven research to product. And I think the fact that we're centred on two major hospitals, that's a key underpinning of our precinct perhaps, that we want to get things that are going to go from an idea 
into a product, into a clinical trial and patient as quickly as possible. That translation underpinning is probably what holds us together and probably why our precinct, I think, is quite successful. So let me ask you, I haven't actually given you any warning about this question, so we'll see how you go with it, but there's just been a federal budget handed down. I mean, it does seem to be a a relatively healthy time to be in the business you're in, in terms of programs of assistance. The National Reconstruction Fund is $15 billion of co-investment money ready to go. There's an industry growth program that just got 390-odd million dollars dropped on it yesterday. So these are programs that are aimed at precisely the area that you work in, taking innovation and moving it through the valley of death and all that stuff into a successful commercial outcome. What do you make of the settings as they stand now as far as finding support and funding? And if you can, like, what's missing? Well, we put out a, an innovation white paper from the Institute a few months ago. We spoke to a lot of people and to this point, I mean, clearly government does what it can. Clearly, government has recognised, we saw in the budget, innovation could be a great growth driver for the whole economy. Everyone says that and they believe it. But when you drill right down to it and you mention, oh, we've got support for the value of death, actually, we don't. We have a lot of support for the early discovery phase. We have burgeoning support now for once it's come out the other side and for manufacturing of these things. But that middle ground, that, that very high valuating value of death, as you referred to, is actually quite limited support from government for. And most of the models that are out there are either at one end of the spectrum or the other. We have this great discovery and then the amount of money required to move it, validate it, get it to the cusp of clinical evaluation, that's quite expensive. Yeah. There's not that many grants through the ARC or the NHMRC or even the MRFF, actually, that supports that type of work. However, those two funds you mentioned, if you get it through there, there is some increasing capital pools. And that's the challenge that we identify in the white paper is my team calls it the valley of opportunity. Many other people call it the valley of death. But how do you take a concept through that bridge to make it investor ready? And, you know, it's high risk, no doubt about it, but that's where the value is actually generated. MedTech is an area where it's a bit easier to do than drug development because the pathways are shorter. You can take a prototype, you can build it, you can evaluate it relatively quickly, and then it's a matter of just manufacturing to the requisite quality to get into a clinical trial. But yes, I would disagree with you slightly that we've got lots of money in the Valley of Death phase, but clearly the government has recognised innovation as a growth driver for the economy, and that's a great thing. Yeah, I think the aim of that new industry growth program was to try and address some of those issues. Now, it's obviously a tough nut to crack because it's been a recognised problem over successive budgets, successive governments who all have attempted to do the right thing, but uh, it's obviously a tough one. Let me ask you, we're all about advanced manufacturing in this country now. We can't swing a cat without hitting uh, someone in conversation about advanced manufacturing. Now, in MedTech in particular, this is something you guys have been doing for a very long time. Can you talk me through the kinds of infrastructure that medtech companies need, like common infrastructure that enables prototyping and building of uh, proof-of-concept products? Yeah, I mean, particularly, well, not all the medtech products are like ours. We work at probably the, the hardest end of the scale, the class 3 implantables. To make them, they're going to be put into a human body, so they need to be made clean. They need a clean room environment. But again, a clean room environment per se, there's lots of them around Melbourne. The skill sets to make them, a lot of these things are almost impossible to 
made by robotic-based systems. They have to be made by hand. And so the skill sets to be able to do that, people with the skills to do that nano-based technology and putting together is always quite difficult, but that's available. The other key thing is some of the machinery is expensive, but we can access that. But the real thing that people don't talk about very often, it's the boring stuff. It's the expertise associated with documenting and creating quality systems, creating a documentation trail that's going to allow you to go to a regulator and say this has been done, creating a fit-for-purpose manufacturing process that can be translated from a 20-unit manufacturing up into a larger scale. And that skill set is not that common. And so you can make these things by hand, show they work in a clinical trial, that's great. But if you haven't, at the same time, developed that whole recipe, manufacturing system, quality management system that go with that, and documented it, it just dies a death. And so we're spending a lot of time at the hard part of that with engineers and software developers and firmware developers, but getting that regulatory quality expertise sometimes is forgotten, and that becomes a rate-limiting step in many cases. So we're spending a lot of time doing that in parallel with developing manufacturing environments, but it's also training people in those aspects. But that's literally the obstacle to scaling production, is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, it is for us. We can't move it to you know, a large-scale manufacturer unless we know that we're going to be making this to a system that is always going to be meeting the requirements for cleanliness, safety, and reproducibility. So engineers trained in the academic sector can do it very well, but they don't quite understand industrial engineering. So those people exist. But as people move up the pathway, James, that I've got an early prototype, oh, I'm going to make it and put it in a human, they often sometimes don't understand just the complexity and the depth of paperwork required to move it on. And they sort of get, oh, that's something that gets forgotten and then they get to the very end of the process and they've got to start again. It's changing, but I find that and have found that to be a bottleneck. The other stuff is getting the right talented people to make the right type of devices has been difficult, but we think we've got a good cohort of people there now. All right. I'm talking to Robert Klupax, the Chief Executive of the Bionics Institute. Robert, I wanted to ask you this. The Minister for Health has announced a half a million dollar grant to accelerate the development of a new hearing test for babies. This is Ear Genie. Tell us a little bit about that project and how Ear Genie kind of differs from what's already out there. Yeah, a lot, most of the, the hearing tests that are done, when Australia has a fantastic early preclinical hearing screening programs. We can identify children often that we don't think hear, and that's using EEG brain-type measurements. What we don't know, though, in many cases, is they don't appear to hear yes, no, but can they actually distinguish sounds is often unknown. And there's a lot of cases where there appears to be a hearing defect, but no one's quite sure because obviously babies can't speak until 12, 18 months many times, and so that loss of hearing or inability to hear the right sounds manifesting in speech difficulty is often missed. You can pick it up perhaps now within nine months, usually 12, but the sooner you can find there's a problem, the better to be able to have an intervention. And so that's been the challenge for the team at the Institute for a long time. And so they've come up with a model using a light-based source to put on a baby's head and put a sound through there and just see how the brain reacts in a non-invasive way to particular sounds coming in and be able to tell whether those babies can actually hear and distinguish different types of sounds because if you haven't got the range of, of sound discrimination, you won't be able to get language development. And so this particular test is quite unique 
it uses light, infrared light, plus some quite unique algorithms, but it also allows the clinician much earlier in the baby's life to see whether or not they can actually hear properly and to have an intervention or a tweak of either a hearing aid or perhaps a cochlear implant given to that child much earlier to allow their brain to become plastic and remodel and perhaps allow that child to learn how to speak much better. We can identify children with hearing loss, but we often can't do very much about it. This particular technology, we think, can act much earlier in the process, but more importantly, give clinical yield for clinicians to have an intervention to the child that can have a great effect on their long-term language capability. Sounds like an amazing project, certainly one that would be uh, rewarding for the people working on it. Look, I'm going to finish up with this one, just looking on to the next 12, 24 months. What are you looking forward to? What's exciting? I mean, we've heard about the Eugenie, but what else is on the horizon for the Bionics Institute that you want to highlight? Well, I think there's obviously more companies. We think we'll have three more companies done in the next 12 months. But what probably we're most excited about, a company we created five years ago, developing a long-term monitoring device for epilepsy seizure. We're very excited by that. We hope that company, within 12 months, definitely will have filed for FDA registration and perhaps achieved FDA registration for a device that was made by my researchers in collaboration with clinicians at St. Vincent's Hospital. It would be a fantastic story. It's looking remarkably effective, but to look back and think in 12 months' time it could have FDA approval is something we're very excited about, James. Just to describe, how long has that journey been? Well, I think there was a journey that Mark Cook, the head of neurology, had about well, from 2010 onwards, thinking that you know, there must be a better way to be able to monitor the seizure activity for patients with epilepsy, extremely limited. He had the idea of long-term monitoring that could be relatively benign. He then linked up with Graham Clark initially and said, well, can I utilise the cochlear implant type technology plus an electrode? And that led to interaction with our engineers. There was quite a bit of innovation required. And that was put into clinical trials in 2019 for the first time. And everyone said, oh, it probably won't work. It'll be a prototype. But the results were quite outstanding. Patients accepted it very well. The recordings that we were able to get long-term, continuous, gave us insights that no one had ever seen before. And the results for the doctors treating the patients means that they can do things they've never done before because previously, Mark had always believed that how we would treat patients, they come in with a notebook saying, I had 10 seizures this week, doctor. He's always had the belief that that was wrong. This device has now proven that is the case. And now you can get a personalized readout of seizure activity which is quantitative, which allows a doctor to actually titrate to the patient. But more importantly now, with some fantastic algorithm development, data analytics on each patient's profile, we believe we've developed a unique patient-specific forecasting tool to indicate when they're likely to have seizures. And that is incredibly game-changing for anyone with epilepsy. And that all came from Mark Cook's dream, linked to our engineering capability, leveraged off the techniques developed for cochlea, which led to this product is a fantastic story. Yeah, that's amazing and genuinely life-changing for the people that will benefit. All right, Robert Klupax, CEO of the Bionics Institute, thank you so much for being on the Commercial Disco today. Thank you, James. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco podcast. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please visit our website, innovationoz.com, 
to check out our reporting on tech, innovation and public policy. You can also follow us on social media to ask us any questions or to suggest a guest for the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.